I mean, the interesting thing about golf balls that I didn't realise before is they have some qualities that other objects do not have. And I only found this out through making contact with a, a man in Nova Scotia called Leo Smith. And he had, I discovered his archive of um, images online. He was one of the first people to start a blog back in the 90s. So this is like way back when. And he was interested in inventing stand, uh, well, a kind of standard measure to put images of his flowers from his nursery of rare peonies that he was breeding. Um, online not and this is before Google Images um, and it was not to um, it was not to sell them online because online shopping didn't exist back then but it was to let people know what he had in or what he had been doing and then they'd look it up on the blog and then they could come down to the nursery and check out the flowers in real life and if they wanted to buy a plant they could. We present The Standard Show the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parkill. Today's episode is about a project called Size Giver. Hello, this is Matthew Childs and welcome to The Standard Show. Now, here on The Standard Show, we cover all sorts of things you might expect. How standards support international trade, how they help organisations to do the right thing about the climate crisis, how standards can work alongside regulation to help keep our food and our workplaces safe. But as often as we can, we like to cover things you might not expect too. Standards and bees, for example, or fireworks, or standards and potholes, or sometimes about people considering standards in slightly different ways, or being inspired by standards in some way, as is the case for this special episode. It's my conversation with London-based designer and academic Karina Quinn. And it's about her own unique standards journey and a resting place on that journey, a project called SizeGiver. A SizeGiver, a term Karina has coined, is an object placed into a photograph to enable judgment of another object's size or scale and communicating this scale much faster than a ruler can, whilst at the same time providing a sense of colour and depth to an image. And these object-object relationships are often strange, playful and unusual. Now, size givers are mass-produced, designed objects which are iconic and familiar, but are also commonplace and at hand. And this ubiquity gives them two functions, as consumer product, but also as a part-time model. And examples of size givers include a coin, a bottle cap, paperclip, matchstick, coke can, or golf ball, which we heard Karina describing at the top of the episode. Karina explains how through the use of these everyday and standardised objects, size-giving is becoming an international visual shorthand to describe not only the meaning of images, but also to tell stories and a way to bring communities together. It's a fascinating conversation. And if you're into design and cycling, then check out the little podcast extra at the end of the episode, when Karina and I talk classic bike frames. This is Cindy Parakel here with a quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So, Karina Quinn is lecturer in design in the Department of Design at Goldsmiths, part of the University of London. In her own words, her work explores how materials, images and arrangements can tell stories and create states of mind. For the past 18 years, she's been involved in the design industry in London, specialising in creative direction and interiors, designing retail, hospitality and workspaces. And in 2019, she won a BSI Standards Award for Standards Education in University Programmes. Now, I wanted to start my conversation with Karina, asking about her design journey and her role at Goldsmiths. But before we got to that, we had to get something a bit more fundamental out of the way first. And if I'm honest, well, it's something a bit embarrassing for me, really. First thing to say is, obviously, we've known each other. How many years have we known each other? About almost five. Five years. Okay, so I've been calling you Corinne for five years, and you've just told me that your name is Karina. <laughs> so Pronounced Karina. Why have you never why have you never corrected me? Oh well lots of people call me lots of different things. I've worked in lots of different places where they've like they've called me Corinna or they called me Kareen or I had a tutor here once because I now te- I teach on the course that I on the BA that I studied on. Um, he was called Martin and he called me uh Corin and for you know since I was a student and then I started working here and um <laughs> he continued calling me Corin and I I just thought it was really sweet so, sweet. so, so I kind of you know I kind of liked that in a way that um there are different um different ways my name is pronounced it's different, by different versions people. of you yeah. so yeah. hold on so we just get this straight so the correct pronunciation is Karina Karina and where's it from it's actually from a record um, by Mississippi John Hurt or something. I left Corina way across the sea. Lord, I left Corina way across the sea. She wouldn't write me no letter. She don't care for me. There's a song called Corina Corina. So the first Corina was C O R I N N A. And then the, there was a comma, and then it was C O R I N N E. And my dad thought, oh, that's an interesting spelling for Karina. And he, yeah, and then that's, that's why they named me with that spelling, but they all, always called me Karina. Why'd you stay last night? Come in this morning, COVID and you right. Right, got yeah. you. There's a reason it is. I have a friend called Corinne. And a cousin who we call Corrine. Ah. Spelled exactly the same way. So that's why I kind of felt, whenever, whenever we have met, I go, do I go with Corrine, Corinne? And now you're telling me I was just wrong anyway. Just. <laughs> well, some, yeah, sometimes it's more effort to correct. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know, Karina, after five years, we're going to get this right. So Karina Quinn. <laughs> Quinn? Yeah. Quinn, good. Okay. <laughs> So goldsmiths, Karina. Tell me about tell me about goldsmiths. People may not know um, for the people listening to this this podcast all over the world. So tell me about Goldsmiths University. Well, Goldsmiths um, is actually the place that I studied my BA. Um, it's I guess it's quite famous for being an art school or a school that is 
um, create a, yeah sort of a university that's creative and and does all sorts of creative degrees most famously I think in the arts and humanities of um, art uh, I guess became famous in the 90s for the YBAs a lot of them came here He's um, a young British artist so young people British like Damien yeah. Hurst and people like that exactly but what a lot of people don't know is that um, the design department has been going going since uh, the 1970s and it actually came out of the art department uh, in the late 60s, early 70s as a kind of radical offshoot. <laughs> um, and uh, the idea of setting up a design department was to reimagine design outside the traditional disciplines. And it was going to be called Total Design, like Total Football. Um, and the concept of Total Football, if you don't know it, because I'm not much of a football fan, is that every, I think every player within the team knows all the positions and so you're able to switch um, your specialism in order to kind of reimagine new possibilities for the game I guess um, and so this concept applied to design was really thinking about um, you know designers are classically trained within those disciplines like you're a product designer or a furniture designer or a graphic designer um, and you can even get tighter with a discipline, so packaging or typography. And actually, um, the idea of being a total designer and understanding how someone with communications or film skills might think, but also being able to um, work with space or think about garments, and um, gives you kind of this overall understanding of what the possibilities could be um, to do things in the world that could change the existing system and so um, uh, it's um, it's a really joyful course to teach on because we have students from all different backgrounds who are interested in all sorts of different things and actually they don't fit one particular discipline and so we're free to ask those questions around um, you know if if the brief or the project is asking us to do one thing actually they after researching and engaging with people and understanding what needs to be done, we're free, or the students are free, to um, not be locked into an end uh, product. So it's not going to be just a poster or a, a piece of graphic communication. It might be um, a piece of film, it could be a podcast, it might actually be something on a sort of city scale. And so the the form of the outcome is not defined and you're able to move between that. So you create it, it's not called the, the total design department, but you're creating total designers, is that the idea really? That Yeah, that was the idea historically <laughs> and I guess it, it kind of still well, tell, is. Yeah, tell me about the department yeah. now, what sort, of, what sort of courses do you have here in the department? So at the BA level we have um, the degree and it's just called BA Design and actually it lost the total because um, I think it put us too far down the prospectus in terms of <laughs> in terms of it's the, the alphabetical order. order of the courses <laughs> something as simple as that because <laughs> people are, are looking at goldsmiths and they're looking for art and design and so like being at D kind of gives you an advantage. another standard right there see alphabet another standard so <laughs> there you go there you yeah. go <laughs> <laughs> so it's just design. So you've got the BA, and what, what, what other courses do you have? Yeah, we have an MA, and um, it's called design, MA Design Expanded Practice. And it's really um, thinking about people who want to study an interdisciplinary design MA. They may have worked um, in industry, or they may 
be coming from all different types of degrees and they're welcomed into this MA to kind of intermingle and do that same thing of um, reimagining cross-disciplinary, uh, post-disciplinary um, forms of design together within this MA. And in terms of obviously uh, your work here, Karina, you've obviously an academic here, but you're also a designer. Give us a, give us a flavour of the sorts of things that you're, you're working on currently. Well, um, at the moment, I'm actually, it's quite funny because I'm coming from a very industry background. I spent more than 15 years working in design studios from products, furniture to kind of more like creative direction and a big portion of my career was working in interiors, um, designing hotels, um, hospitality, residential uh, restaurants and things like that. Um, And so, but I was always part-time teaching here for a long time whilst I was working. And so um, at the moment I'm kind of, I guess they would call me a early career researcher because um, I don't actually write uh, design publications or uh, write, um, I don't really write you sort articles of not, you're not submitting to articles to journals and things like that. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that is one way to do academia within mm. design field, but I think when you have spent a lot of your time, I think design is something that really has to be enacted. It needs to be done in the world. You're doing things with people. You have a client, you have a set of people that need to... Um, uh, you need to deliver something to and it needs to work and so there is a kind a part of design that's a, uh, academia that is I guess writing about that and theorizing and um, it's much more in that kind of traditional academic space but my point of view I guess is I'm trying I'm coming from more of an industry perspective and trying to find my space within um, the world of say research or practice that is cited in um, the university and so my projects have become a lot more about um, considering the things that I've experienced in my professional um, practice and questioning them. Um, and one example of this is standards. Um, so when I worked in interiors, there were there were a lot of standards that you need to work with, like when you're designing a a floor plan or where you're looking at chair heights because you're doing a restaurant and it needs to fit 150 covers you need to really know how far can you pull this particular chair back in order to create um, that there's enough space behind the chair so it doesn't crash into the next chair of the next row of tables how wide is this particular chair um, does that mean that we lose two covers at the end of the table so like the day-to-day within my studio working life was engaging with dimensions engaging with how objects interact with each other and um and and knowing those things off by heart and when i didn't know those things off by heart there were ways to there were ways to find out what is the standard dimension between uh, two people who are meant to be queuing um, within a sort of um, retail space. How do we find that out? I'm interested from a from a, a professional academic's perspective, but also designer's perspective. Did you find those standards and those sort of areas of good practice? Did they facilitate your creativity? Did you find them straining? How did you approach them from a designer perspective? 
It's um, it's funny because when you're working in industry, you have very little time to deliver something. So you just need to know what the measurements are. You need to know, okay, well, is that chair 450 or 470? Or you know, how high should this bar height be? And this would the this would be the conversations that we would have in the studio. We'd say, oh, you know, well, I'm doing a bar. Um, do you think it should be 1050 or 10, you know, 1100? Like, what's what's your opinion? Mm. And if we couldn't figure out like when the last time we designed this particular thing, um, what what was the right height? We'd look it up in this book which was called the Neufert book um, and it's a German book of architectural architects data it's called and you would be able to find the answer in this book I don't think that answered your question actually <laughs> no I'm just, wonder, I'm just, no, I'm just one, wondering thinking as um I mean we've talked about this in the past about the designer being the creative force mm. and standards are obviously con- consensus best practice where you're bringing people together from all sorts of different perspectives to come up with to, to develop that particular standard that we're talking about about what is an appropriate height for a chair I just wonder from a maybe from a sort of a philosophical perspective about how you feel about that from a designer where you're coming up with your vision but then you're utilizing a tool that has been developed by consensus. How do you, how do you feel about that from a from a designer's perspective? I guess yeah. When you're working within um, when you're working on a project and you're specifying furniture, for example, for an interior of a restaurant, you have very little time in order to do that. And so you so you can trust that things are going to be the right height and the right width um, in order that you fit all that stuff in. And that um, actually never really crossed my mind to challenge that because you just need things to be easy and you need them to work it's all about kind of the coordination of objects as well so you're trying to move fast and I think the difference is when you are in an environment like this in a university you have the space to start to think about well why is why should this be like this who decided that this should be in this way and there's more time for um examination of that and questioning and I mean that's what we're doing in university we're looking at the world around us and we're thinking um, and we're creating questions and we're asking should this be like this and why and how did this come to be in this way how did things get standardized um, what system is that related to and and how can we s- start to understand that as designers we're acting within a space where there are the systems all surrounding us and there are rules that you can't even see right now because you don't understand yet the complexity of the world and how things are manufactured and all these constraints around even does it fit into a box that fits into a shipping container that can be transported with and, and the, the change I suppose is the performance of materials as well if you're designing things with certain materials the performance requirements may be there may be standards involved there yes. I just wonder from your obviously you've got students here from all over the world and they're going to be obviously working on their courses and going out and, and being designers in all different sorts of fields I just wonder uh, as an ap- approach that you take within the within the department do you get students to challenge those first principles rather than just accept them do you, do you sort of engage as you've just done there critically with these concepts even if you think well nothing may change with about them we're still going to have to use these because there may be some safety legislation or, or whatever involved with them but do you get students to sort of critically appraise these mm. basic principles yeah I think we always ask students to kind of reimagine things um, reimagine 
the constraints there. But I think, first of all, they're not sometimes not even aware of how standards or rules or systems are actually shaping everything they do. And, you know, I guess that's a kind of, maybe that's a big ask for someone who's 19, 20 years old because you're, you know, you're at the beginning of your journey um, with learning and engaging with the world and how could you possibly understand that, say, um, I don't know, this sort of, this object, uh, which is a bottle cap, is made... um, to an international ISO and that may be the same worldwide and it's not only because of its dimension its dimension comes off the fact that it's manufactured in a particular way using a particular method using a particular material so even in the simplest object are kind of locked in so many kind of complex um, well simple but also complex um, systems um, that are present worldwide and um, I think yeah so for the first at the first point we're asking students within our degree to kind of consider the things around them and consider how they are locked up in in this complexity and to start to uncover the entangledness of all of these things that are that belong to the story of just one object and unpick them and question them and um, be aware that those are principles that are things or rules that are governing everything they do, but they may not realise it. You know. Now we talked. Uh, we've t- you've talked a bit about your relationship with standards, and we're going to come on to talk about a particular project that you've that you've developed. But just to sort of sort of complete your standards journey for us, you know, in terms of your um, relationship with, how would you describe your relationship with standards as a designer and academic? How important are they for you? I guess it started when I was when I was working and understanding all the different constraints of the objects and the furniture, um, the fabrics that I was specifying and working with and how they had to all interact with each other. Um, and then um, probably where I started to have these conversations and engage with this these ideas around standards with students was um, that I was asked to write a brief for the MA students um, on design um, expanded practice and it was um, I just read a book actually by a really wonderful architectural writer called Keller Easterling and um, it was all about it was called extra, extra statecraft and it was all about the kind of hidden infrastructures and rules and standards that govern um, people's everyday lives. I think she's writing quite critically about this. <laughs> and and uh, there's this one passage where she, right at the beginning of the book, where she um, describes um, credit cards, the size of credit cards, how they're all designed to go into a particular, uh, particular size slot in order to be operated within these ATMs worldwide. So it's kind of like the everyday objects that are standardized that then tap into these these worldwide networks. And she had talked about the different ISOs that exist from the size of credit cards to there being an ISO for boiling pasta. And I just had read this and I thought, this is really wild. Like there is an ISO for boiling pasta. What is this all about? So I started thinking about this and reading more and then started uncovering this whole kind of series 
this whole sort of archive of, of standards that are actual, you know, this is how I came up across the, the BSI, that um, someone has meticulously written up a particular way to do something and um, and it's and it's been sometimes illustrated there's step by steps there's timings like it's so accurate and we do this a lot in design especially on the kind of specification side when you're when you pull together a vision you know how everything is going to be made and done and executed and produced you have to be very very clear about um it's this particular color and this particular finish. Um, it's this dimension, and not only that in the qualities of the object, but also it needs to be installed in this particular way with this particular um, object that is interacting with it, right? So we're really thinking about all the details in order to explain how something should end up um, being positioned or being done. And this is. I think anyone who's worked in a design studio, at least designing spaces, but you will also have this for people who design graphics and branding and brand guidelines. Like down to the T, you have this description about how to do something and how um, these rules need to be followed in order that your final design gets realised in the in the most accurate and best possible way. And so this is a language we're using as creatives um, to translate and ensure that um, our our ideas are realised to the the final um, the final detail, and so this really appealed to me this kind of um, accuracy and the method method methodological <laughs> um, way of actually dis- describing how to um, boil pasta because that is something I would do to um, describe how a particular um, mirror should be hung within a downstairs bathroom. I don't know, <laughs> like I would, um, we go down to that level in terms of how you envision something coming together. And particularly with interior design, it's about the interaction of objects and how they're placed and um, how they look and feel and work together. And so you have to be have this kind of coordinating mind um, in order to produce that description. <laughs> just, just on that, because I've been interested in your the, how you how you approach that from a sort of it was a self-revelation about oh this hidden world, this hidden architecture, the sort of guiding and supporting our everyday lives and shaping them and influencing them. As a designer, obviously there's a, there's a period of evolution of, of a design, isn't there? And you then it comes to a state where that you might sort of consider there's a, a perfect combination of form and function there. Were you sort of fascinated by the sort of because standards are reviewed? And they're always being, they're always evolving and improving to, to take in consideration uh, a new environment or a new policy context or things like that. How did you feel about that? Did you, did you feel that you were opening up a world here that felt steady state or opening up a world the way you think, well, actually, these are sort of defined and rigid and won't change? How did you, how did you approach that? How did you feel about that when you sort of were uncovering this world? I guess um, I was just really interested in the rules and how standards were written because of the potential to standardize something that's not been standardized before. Mm-hmm. So um, like for students to understand how how to kind of, like 
when you're boiling pasta as an ISO, you're designing the way, the perfect way that that needs to happen, a particular way. But as soon as you take that principle and you put it with something that's really unexpected, so how to walk, <laughs> for instance, could you write a standard for how to walk down the street um, in a uh, in a particularly formal way? Right. Yeah, I, I can, I can see, I see how it might, what's the most optimum way of not bumping into each other. Yeah, I, I yeah, see. Yeah, but it could be about um, yeah. the vibe you give off. It could be about formality. It could be about finesse, and the idea that you can, as a creative project, take that kind of format and apply it to something as simple as walking or um, eating soup or something. Yeah suddenly becomes a really wonderful creative challenge. Maybe there is a perfect form of walk, a one way of walking on a catwalk. So models walk in a particular way. And has that evolved to show the clothes off in the perfect way? I'm just thinking, as you were talking, there, thinking it's a, a professional walk, isn't it? A catwalk is yeah, a professional walk. True. And it's using your body in a certain way to give off a particular vibe and to showcase the clothes. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. So then um, with that, I would say that's a really lovely example of something that could be is ripe for writing a standard about it, not necessarily to um, to lock people into that way of walking, but the act of writing, the act of considering every single part of that um, process um, not only from how that person is putting one foot in front of the other, but also how is your head held? What are you thinking while you're right uh, while you're you're doing that thing? I think is it kind of gives uh, designers a way of thinking about every aspect of doing something or making something, and so that the project was really that it was taking the principle or learning from uh, how standards are written in this meticulous detail, which is very much. Um, I think has a parallel to some design considerations in terms of how and why and where and you know uh, there's some long-standing design laws and principles I suppose aren't there about proportion and yeah. context and things like that yeah. exactly and then learn like applying that um, capturing of uh, a set of instructions or a set of descriptions to something totally unexpected being a really interesting um creative task to do and through that really um them discovering all the different ways in which an everyday object or an everyday um way of doing something could be uh designed described or uh finessed or interrupted and subverted through that method um so yeah, it's standardization and it's and it's very detailed um, written forms of doing things become this kind of creative opportunity for um, designers to consider all aspects of something they're designing or doing, but also an invitation to reimagine then what could those rules be. This is Emma Glass here at University Partnerships Manager at BSI with some information for postgraduates studying at UK universities. Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI's Student Research Programme can help. 
The way it works is simple. You benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. And we gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work. To find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, check out the link in our show notes. Karina, you were talking a moment ago about everyday items. Now, we've got some on the table in front of us here in your office. Um, but And it's all about this project we've got called Size Giver. So tell us, what is Size Giver? Well, actually, I'm going to hang back to <laughs> the MA brief that I wrote because it actually came out of... Um, the MA brief which was called standard practice and uh, the brief was really thinking as I explained before about designers understanding the kind of standard practice of their field so in graphics it might be standard practice to print things in a certain way or to um, to have certain habits which are good practice um, and that will be in architecture and all these different disciplines as well and because you know we're design right we're all across design like I wanted to ask the students to become aware of the practices and the standards within their work and within their field and start to pay attention to them and start to question them and reimagine them Um, and if they would identify the rules and the codes and the standards of the discipline they were coming from they may be able to kind of turn those on their heads and reimagine a different way of doing their practice and as part of this project um, one of the it was a Chinese student actually she was showing me some images of um, uh, young girls on uh, Weibo um, which was a Chi- is a Chinese social network like an Instagram and they were measuring so that it's kind of um, photographs of these girls not with their faces but they're holding up a piece of A4 in front of their waists and it was a meme um, or a challenge called A4 waist so these um, I think these girls were showing how thin they were so look, it's, 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 it's a portrait portrait style of, of, a, of an A4 piece of paper and then saying okay are you yeah are you, do you, is your weight as wide as A4 or down exactly, to A4 exactly right. and she had um, she was looking at all these different ways in which the body was measured um, even and part of this was the biggest meme was the A4 waist thing so um, kind of horrible like um, the idea that your thinness is measured by an A4 but it took off in China and then but there were other things like um, they were uh, these girls were also wrapping Chinese banknotes around their wrists and saying you know well um, this is how thin my wrist is by how uh, how this banknote fits around or even um, when you raise your shoulders and your collarbones create this uh, void and this little pocket in your neck and they were putting coins and seeing how many coins they could fit into this collarbone and it was like the coin collarbone so these things were traveling around social media in China and she was showing me these images and I was thinking wow that's so strange how they're not measuring and they're not saying I'm a size zero right that's the debate in in the west or uh, at least in the uk band size zero i don't even know what size zero looks like but i think it's probably quite small um 
gaps that they were literally quantifying without a tape measure, without saying it's 26 inch waist or a 24 inch waist. They were showing A4 as the waist and this connected directly back to uh, the Neuerfurt Architects Data Book, which was linked into the developments of DIN measurements, um, which was the A4, I believe, the A4, A3, the A paper sizes. And suddenly there was this connection between the idea that you would people would rather measure things using everyday objects and everyday um, standardised um, uh, things that they have around them, in this case being... Um, an A4 piece of paper, a banknote or a coin. Um, so I wondered, uh, rather than using me- rather than using kind of metrics like inches or, or millimeters or rulers or tape measures, and I thought this is this is really strange. I wonder whether this is because of the visualness of the way we experience the world. Like we send images to describe things rather than actually describing things. We're posting on uh, social media all the time and so is are people preferring this way of describing reality through everyday objects than using the metric system and so I started looking for off the back of this uh, project and, and this discussion with a student I started looking for other examples of people using everyday objects to scale things in an image and then not really being about bodies but more about um, uh, weird and wonderful outsized uh, objects or things in nature I don't know I didn't really know what I was looking for when I began the journey but I was I was I called it initially penny for scale because it's something that everyone knows that maybe you would use a penny for scale particularly within um, people who make models, uh, small-scale models, or sell uh, miniature-sized doll furniture on eBay, for example, you would have like a one penny. And I know this is specific to the UK, right? So you know, you know how big a penny is. And there are online forums where you can find um, people selling things with the penny next to it for scale. They'll say penny for scale. But when I continued searching and I because I'd spent so long working in interiors um, looking for images like being an image sourcing person I kind of had my eye trained to look for you know leather uh, 1970s armchair Brazilian blah 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 you know so I was like right on the case with a penny for scale and it start the, the searches started throwing up all sorts of stuff like um People selling on uh, like a hoodie on Depop, uh, which is kind of like a young person's eBay. <laughs> um, like if Instagram, I've never heard of it. So there you go. <laughs> if Instagram and eBay had a baby, it would be Depop. Depop. <laughs> and you find lots of kind of um, millennial Gen Z uh, generation um, selling clothes on Depop, clothes and objects. So I found a hoodie that had a hole in hole in the front and. Um, and the hole was scaled next to a penny to show how big the damage. So that was the damage, but just to give a sense of how, like, how big oh, it is. Oh, there's a there's a hole on the front, but you can see how big that hole is. Anything from that to things like uh, people, some people in Canada using a Canadian penny to measure the depth of um, to scale the depth of a hole in the tarmac, and they're working for the um, road safety 
authority and um, they're posting that on a forum that then gets reposted so to show the kind of the depth of the damage of this particular hole that needed to be repaired and obviously the hole is bigger than a penny it might be the size of a uh, watermelon but a penny is the nearest object that they had that everyone could realize um, and recognize and so the more I kept searching and this was not only on Google Images it was on Reddit, um, Wikimedia Commons, Instagram, Facebook um, and all sorts of strange uh, image discussion forums um, what people were doing with the pennies and what they were measuring started to s tell strange stories about the types of communities that are out there who are posting images of remarkable things that they've seen like a giant mushroom or um, a rare truffle or uh, people who are in the plant world who um, have an, an interesting um, lily that's a kind of rare breed and they want to show that next to an everyday object so people understand the size of that or the scale of that and I collected this in an archive of over 2,000 images. Oh, well, and it, was it normally a penny? Was it was it different? I've got the A4 paper, we've got pennies. Is there any, any other example? Well, yeah, so I'd amassed this penny was the biggest file I had. But then through that, I started seeing other people using golf balls or um, tennis balls. Um and uh, people using A4 also for really different things. So I thought A4, I'd only seen A4 really applied to the A4 waste, but there'd be people selling a handbag on eBay and it's on top of an A4. That's a perfect size for a handbag to scale the handbag because of the nature of the aspect of the object. But I found a group of scientists in, I think in the UK actually, who were measuring the density of a cornfield as part of an academic paper. Um, they were using drones and uh, they were getting the drones to photograph the, the density of the corn mm. from above, but they needed to work off a, a um, visual dimension. So they were using an A4 that's placed on the top of the, the wheat sheaves mm -hmm. Um, for scale because everything is photographed from above and so A4 was the perfect object in a way to just sit um, at the top of So there's not even a precise measurement going on it's a sort of instant communication oh that feels big or small depending on, on, on what the what the sort of what the viewer thinks about it but that sort of instant communication yes. hit isn't it? And with that one it was more that the A4 was a calibration device to calibrate the photographs um, to measure like whole fields of wheat and ultimately to understand how um, climate uh, change is is impacting um, the yields of certain uh, crops. And so at one level you've got scientists and another level you've got teenagers selling their hoodies <laughs> who are all starting to use these everyday objects mainly from the home, from the domestic space. They might be in your pocket when you're out for a walk with your dog and you see an amazing fungus um, to to tell to calibrate our sense of um, the remarkableness of this particular uh, thing that's the fo focus of the um, photograph in order for, yeah, to appeal to their community to say, I found the most amazing whatever and this is how big it was or this is... Uh, 
how this is the scale of it and in order for any of that to make sense you need the standardized object but not only not a ruler um, because I guess no one carries a ruler around with Just them. No, as, you, as you've been talking, I'm thinking, how wide is an A4 piece of paper? And I have no idea. But it's mm. obviously something we've, we've all been using for a very, very long time. But everyone will instantly know that either feels small or large or whatever, or depending on, on their own particular perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. So instant communication here. I'm just one instant communication hit. I'm just thinking culturally, any differences from how this is being used around the world? Or in, You've mentioned different communities using it in pretty similar ways, from scientific communities maybe yeah. to someone selling flowers online or measuring the size or demonstrating how, how, how wide their waist is. Any sort of cultural differences at all? Well, there are um, certain objects that are very international um, and uh, and like a tennis ball or like a can of Coke that will probably be the same, at least in terms of its um, diameter worldwide because of the way that it's made. Um, but there are th- objects that are um, national specific. So a really good example of this is currency. I don't know how big a dollar bill is, right? But I've got loads of images of dollar bills. So and you're kind of assuming it might be similar to to sterling, maybe, or the euro. You don't quite like know. Skinnier, skinnier. And like, or shorter and longer. And actually, what I'm trying to tap into in my mind in terms of my bank of images are uh, films, <laughs> you know, like American movies. So I, I don't actually have one of those in my possession. So there are certain objects that... Um, you got a sense of how big they are, but I don't have any real experience or everyday experience. It is interesting as you're talking there about the, obviously there's precision from a Coke can that's on the table here and obviously maybe a a golf ball or a tennis ball or a dollar bill or or a euro, which obviously has a precise measurement. But the object that it's being up against, we don't really care about the precise measurement of that. It's just in relation to, isn't it? That incredible, you know, sort of, well, it it feels right. It just feels right. It doesn't have to be precise. So using a precision instrument, a precision tool to then not measure something precisely. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. It's true, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, it actually doesn't matter whether it's a slightly uh, maxi size can of Coke or not. It's just everyone kind of knows that. They know how it feels. They've all probably we've all held a can of fizzy pop at some point and so it, it I think it's the immediacy of the visual juxtaposition that is the interesting thing but coming back to what you were saying about the cultural objects it's true that I don't know how big a baseball is but in America they when they talk about size of um, hail for example they talk about it in terms of it's always in terms of balls obviously because you're trying to measure something uh, like for like so they'll say well um this you know that they'll you can find images of um, different hail sizes compa- as compared to sports balls um, online. And I never knew what a baseball size was, really. <laughs> I know, because I don't know what it is in relationship to a tennis ball or a cricket ball. I'm kind of thinking it probably is cricket ball size. But it's funny you say about hail, because I always think of it in terms of golf ball size. It came down like the size of golf balls. I, I think yeah. about it as golf balls rather than baseballs. But yeah, some sort of sport ball, <laughs> yeah. the way you think about hail. I mean, the interesting thing about golf balls that I didn't realise before is they have some qualities that other objects do not have. And I only found this out through making contact with a, a man in Nova Scotia called Leo Smith. And he had, I discovered his archive of... Um, 
images online. He was one of the first people to start a blog back in the 90s. So this is like way back when. And he was interested in inventing uh, a kind of standard measure to put images of his flowers from his nursery of rare peonies that he was breeding um, online. Not, And this is before Google Images. Um, and it was not to um, it was not to sell them online because online shopping didn't exist back then. But it was to let people know what he had in or what he had been doing. And then they'd look it up on the blog and then they could come down to the nursery and check out the flowers in real life. And if they wanted to buy a plant, they could. And so he so we struck up this kind of communication emails back and forward. And he I noticed that he had golf balls but he'd created his own tool which was a golf ball on a stick like on a metal rod and it was because he didn't want to have his hand in the photo because obviously if you're holding a golf ball um, you can imagine a flower on a stem needs to be photographed um, next to an object that as is at the same height but he didn't want to have his hand in there so he made the golf ball uh um, he drilled a hole in it and he attached a stick. And so he had a kind of ready-made size giver. I love size giver prop, isn't it? It's yes. fantastic. And the way these, so he has like more than, I don't know, more than a thousand images that he's taken for his blog and kindly has given to me here. I can see some on the table now that look fantastic. And so the uh, most amazing thing is that um, when a peony, I don't know whether you're familiar with flowers, but a peony... It's almost like a rose, and when it's a bud, it is almost golf ball shape. I'm wondering so, whether he chose Spalding as his as his golf ball of a uh, golf ball brand of uh, for any particular reason. It's a white golf ball, so we've got obviously different colour peonies here. They are beautiful flowers. A lot of them are pink, um, but when a peony is about to bloom, it will before it's actually blooms, it will look like a golf ball size. It's it's wrapped up so tight in this ball of petals and then over a five-day period it will come out and it will you can see it here um they'll come out and it will bloom and it will bloom in the most kind of fantastic sort of um dramatic way yes i can see here you've got one image here where the 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 golf ball is basically the same size as the flower and then one where i'm going to guess here my 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 impression is that the golf ball well the flower is now 10 times the size of the golf ball yeah they open out and then they kind of die in the, the most kind of amazing way. They're just kind of, their petals just kind of fall um, and and these kind of amazing sort of yellow bits in the middle also fall. So it looks like there's been this explosion over an amount of days. It's so beautiful. So I could totally understand why he would want to blog about the, and he would blog day by day, the, the flowers opening day two is so particularly the journey of the flower exactly and it, and this golf ball being the thing that kind of allows us to understand well how big is this or how dramatic is this really it makes sense um in terms of a visual description but what i learned from him is that he was not only using the golf ball as a scaling device but also as a kind of white balance device in oh with the, the color of course yes because if you overexpose the photo then you lose the little dot dot dots dimples of the golf ball i see so then i suddenly started thinking this is so this is really really interesting because there is an object here it's a white object so you can calibrate 
um, white balance, but you can also understand if something's overexposed because its detail will disappear. And we had a conversation about this being uh, not things, uh, objects, not only being about scale, but being about colour. So, so he's making sure then he can represent through these images not only the scale, but the proper colour of the flower. Because obviously colour is important for people who are interested in flowers. Mm. So this is working on two, two completely different levels. Yeah. So it's a true, giving a truer, a truer representation of the flower. Absolutely. Mm. And if you've got like a post-production thing or it's a sunny day and your photograph's been altered mm. by atmospheric conditions, you're able to kind of pull that photo back. So it's also about the materiality of... Uh, the photograph, the digital photograph. Because if you're looking at that, you think, well, that golf ball, it looks like a golf ball, it doesn't look quite right, therefore there's something wrong with this image. You'd then begin to question that, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And so that, this also kind of made me think about forensics and how people, you know, if you're someone who's a gallery curator, you might be archiving objects and you will see, you'll have a kind of scaling device which looks like a kind of black and white checkered flag. And that will tell you how big, um, usually the checkers are a centimetre square. So this is something that's used within that world of archiving or even forensics, where you have certain um, black and white contrast. You also have a kind of circular device that allows you to kind of understand the angle and recalibrate the angle of the photograph. And you'll have um, colour also, so you can understand whether your colour is off. So you can get the truest, you can tweak your photo back to the truest representation of reality. And it made me start thinking, because there is a real culture of people using Coke cans as a scaling device, particularly within the model making world. So people who make scale models of houses or... Um, uh, replicas of trophies. Or I'd love this idea of having a particular item for a particular area. So they've got a gold ball for flowers. We had A4 for sort of uh, sort of size of waist and sort of a body image. And then we're on Coke cans for model making. Model making. Model making, but also I think um, the Coke can is very much within the world of small objects so ceramics so lots of people who are selling ceramics or have made ceramics they'll put it next to a coke can because it is of a kind of ceramics type of scale if you've made a mug if you've made a vase i see because it's held in the hand and you can get a sense of how it might fit in your hand if you're looking at a yeah i, I, I get that completely because it's, it's kind of related but not completely so yes it's because if you put another cup by it it would make no sense would it? Yeah. Would make, a mug by a mug would make no sense at all because you'd have no sense of the scale whatsoever there, would you? And when things are handmade, that it can be slightly off. It's not a standardised kind of uh, builder's mug shape, for example, yeah. which we know is constructed in a certain way and industry produced. So for the world of craft and model making, I'm starting to notice Coke cans as not only something that gives scale, but something that gives depth because it kind of goes, uh, it's a sort of circular cylindrical object, mm. but it also offers up the, um, the red color. So if you need to calibrate the red, uh, you, I don't know whether you can calibrate a whole photograph's color balance on a red, but you certainly can 
understand what that red of a Coke is as a standard color. Exactly, that it's produced. You, you would immediately know that's off as a as the, yes. that doesn't, that's a Coke can, but it's not doesn't look quite right. Yeah, because if I put in say um, a lot of white into that photo, it was in a white background. My camera, my digital camera, will start seeing that red in a different way and it might actually end up in the photograph as something that is a bit more of a raspberry red but we all know that coke red is coke red so you can pull your photo back to and therefore the object within it to the red that the coke should be in order to understand what that object should be which i just find quite mad like that's quite amazing Um, so, yeah, within these kind of small communities who are specialists in their field, whether you're into making Dungeons and Dragons uh, kind of model worlds or whatever, or whether you're into photographing truffles and looking for giant mushroom fungus on a forest walk, or whether you're, um, I don't know, selling your clothes or uh, selling hand-knitted slippers on eBay, which um, there is a big kind of market for that you can start to um, understand the world through these everyday objects and the objects do seem to have um, particular resonance with certain communities so yeah the coke can is definitely a kind of something that I've noticed more for a crafts sort of ceramics world which is really interesting (laughs) have you ever wondered how standards are made or who gets to make them, or why standards are numbered the way they are. Maybe you have a burning question about standards related to your job, or maybe you're just plain curious about something to do with standards. Well, this is your chance to get your question about standards answered in the latest of our press conference episodes. Getting in contact with us here on The Standard Show is really easy. Simply record your question via a voice note and we'll do the rest. All the details of how to do this are in the show notes. Go on, ask us anything about standards. So you started uncovering all of these uh, different sort of um, cultural and professional and personal uses of, of everyday objects to, to communicate size. So where are we now with SizeGiver? Where, where's the project now? Well, so I had collected up all of these different examples of communities who were measuring things with different objects, um, and I had amassed them into uh, this book, which I'm calling Size Giver. It's actually Size Giver One. Size Giver One, nice. <laughs> because, because it's of, um, let's say, it's almost two coke cans. Oh, you're cans measuring high. it now with a coke can. <laughs> I like it. Yes. So it's about two thirds of a coke can in height. Uh, t- sorry. A third, hold on, it's almost a third yeah. size of a Coke can. <laughs> it's almost two Coke cans high. Um, yes, it's it's designed as a kind of catalogue of what I discovered and all the stories of the different people um, who I've taken those photos from online. They're all credited in there, or the source is credited, and the caption is, um, is there too to describe what people were why were people taking this image and what for and that can be anything from the scientific and putting something on wikimedia commons to um uh we had a bumper harvest of blackberries this year and here's nine boxes next to a wine bottle for example which is why i'm calling it size giver one because it just it contains all of the objects 
um, that I've well, archived, actually, it contains only the first um, seven or eight objects that I've amassed images for. So it starts out with a penny and then it goes up to a paperclip, a matchstick, a ping pong ball, golf ball, tennis ball and ends with a can of Coke. But I have bigger size givers that don't fit in this book. And the idea is that everything is printed at scale using the size giver to scale the photograph. So some photographs kind of clip off the edge of a image because everything is centered within the size giver is centered within the book so this so yeah next will be the next size up which is beer bottles and wine bottles and we'll basketballs have a, we'll have a and bigger things. size book i see so yes. we'll have a coffee table size book for the next one probably but i have actually have a problem with pixels <laughs> because when you take an image off instagram that contains a, a wine bottle you need to scale if i need to scale that wine bottle up well, we I'm could get into, got we could get into JPEG here, which obviously <laughs> is an international standard for, yes. for a photograph. <laughs> I just wonder then, you've got Science Giver 2 in terms of collection, but maybe as a as a project or a, as a creative exercise or an academic exercise, what, where are you going next? Where would you like to go next with it? The next stage of this project is being able to have these conversations with like-minded people within my design community and starting to introduce the concept of the size giver to them whether they are aware of it or not um for example this designer here who produced this book martino he has produced this book at different sizes and um and so he in on his website he'll photograph it next to this big four color pen which is a and a you know a piece of design that's been consistent since the 1960s. I remember I think. having one of those at school. So you've yeah. got the four different colours there that you click on, don't you? When it comes exactly. Out yeah. So he'll photograph on his website its publication um, because it's been editioned in different sizes, and he'll have the pen next to the book. And so it's not an object um, like uh, standing in space like a cylindrical coke can but it's a, a kind of bird's eye view plan photo of the pen next to the book and something i was thinking is i wonder there's the pen not only offers a scale because we know that the big four color pen is a certain weight and a certain size but it's also offering us a kind of sense of colors like these these plastic colors have not changed since this pen was designed back in the 60s and it's got, you know, depending on which way you put it, you've got the blue, the green, the black and the red. So um, now I'm starting to get quite interested in, yeah, that that object being very specific to being next. It sits well next to, pub, to a publication. What would uh, a designer who's made a chair or a stool uh, photograph their, their object next to, whether it meets standard heights, or not um, what is that object that they have probably from their studio probably hanging around what does that say about them their way of working what does that say about the objects within their place and what does the relationship between that everyday object we all understand next to the new thing they've produced what does that do what kind of story does that tell I start to see this in other communities that if you're a geologist there's a particular type of uh, hammer pick 
that geologists will put in their photographs because everyone within that community understands the size of that that. and you can see the layers of the rock but there is also a particular geologist on Instagram who uses a sharpie for scale and every time he goes out there's this grey black sharpie in all of these amazing kind of mineral photographs so a tr- going from a traditional pick to Has more modern objects. everyone else annoyed by him that he's sort of, sort of broken the rules here? <laughs> I'm yet to interview him. I am hoping to have so a So he went off call. beast and thought we're going to have a Sharpie instead of a, instead of a pick. He's Go kind on. of made it his own, but that's the thing. It, there, may be, there may be something around tools within the design and making community. Mm. There may be something around stationery. Um, or there... I don't know, maybe there's something else um, that's consistent, common, but really I want to have those conversations with those people, kind of around making and practice um, and and the objects we surround ourselves with that kind of make up our reality. And, and a lot of those objects will be uh, consistent in people's studios, so I'm interested to see what they think about that and... Uh, and and you know designers are I can't, they care about these things too so I'm hoping that um, we'll have some interesting conversations about what size givers could be what they are for that community and how um, what will size givers be in the future because they rely on us having those objects around so you know cash is disappearing um, who knows how big a penny will be in the next generation because maybe pennies won't be around or maybe they'll just be around only to size things karina size giver then this is this is something you you've come up with this is this is your creation here i just wonder where where as a, as a concept an idea where you'd love you know in 5 10 15 years time what will you want people to be say, adopting this term using this term where, where would you love it to go i guess i'm really interested in material culture objects uh, our relationship with objects and how and with visual culture and those come together within this project and I guess I'd like to yeah I I like the idea of um, pointing out something that people are doing that they don't realize they're doing that are starting to notice that this is uh, the way we use objects in um, in ways that are not in that intended for their original use is happening all around um and i want to understand why is this happening because it's it's really playful and visually it's creating these amazing pictures that are kind of quite surreal um so i guess i would like to yeah establish i guess establish it as a thing that is happening um and gather um more really amazing images of everyday things and weird and wonderful things that are happening in the world that are either talking about transformation or um, rare sites um, and and put that in an exhibition or something so extend the archive get better more high quality (laughs) images and uh, allow people to talk yeah start a conversation around uh, the importance of objects in our lives and um, noticing how objects can be used in ways that we uh, don't uh, usually consider them to be used. 
Um, and there's a kind of beauty in that, a visual beauty, but also a functionality within that. In my conversation with Karina, we talked about quite a few of those everyday or commonplace items being used as size givers, including A4 paper, credit cards and Coke cans. Well, as we heard, they are being used because of their standardised sizing. And as you might imagine, being standardised means standards are involved. So, A4 paper, that's from ISO 216, the international standard for paper sizing. Credit cards? Well, that's ISO 7810. And if you're wondering, Coke can red? That's Pantone 484. My huge thanks to Karina, correctly pronounced from now on, for sharing with me her standards journey. A journey which started with standards being a sort of implicit and unconscious part of a design and academic work but which have now become a much more explicit and conscious endeavour really, not just for her, but for her students too. And I really like Karina's approach of encouraging not only that critical engagement of a standard's first principles, but also the creativity that can result from adopting and using the standard. And also how using a standard approach can lead to exploring or viewing life from a completely different perspective. You never know, one day, we may have that standard for walking. To find out more about SizeGiver, Karina's work, and that of the design department at Goldsmiths, then follow the links in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find details of how to get in contact with Karina, because her project is continuing, and she's on the lookout for more SizeGivers. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to The Standard Show now, wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. Now, I want to ask you something else about design, right? So you and I bonded. I have to say bonded over Bromptons, didn't we? We bonded over Bromptons. We're a lover of the Brompton bike and how it's a... Well, I think a perfect form of form, a perfect example of form and uh, function there's a Mercian behind you there, a green Mercian. So tell me about your beautiful green Mercian bike there. Oh, well, um, this bike is probably 18 years old. I, um, it's a bespoke made frame and uh, there's this wonderful company up in Derby called Mercian Bikes who've been making these bikes for years and years now. And um, I, I think I ordered it the day the day before I broke up with my ex-boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> as a kind of uh, thing to look forward to a new a new person in my life <laughs> and it's got this really gorgeous kind of metallic green I know I was looking at the colour trying to work out what that is what sort of green sh- what what, mm. what did you specify that because you could have any leaf colour, green pearl a leaf green pearl mm. it is a very nice shade of green I must admit and, and paired it with sort of the brown tape you always had the brown tape yeah, yeah yeah kind of brown leather tape and a brook saddle but it's it's my ultimate sort of freedom object it kind of reminds me like a chocolate lime yeah. sweet where you get the green sweet and then the chocolate inside so it's kind of like that it is very beautiful and and dis- you've got to tell, describe how, how what it's like to ride it just do you know what it feels like riding nothing that's how <laughs> that's the only way it's i can describe it. it just feels like it's not even there and sometimes i can't even hear it because it 
it just works so perfectly and so it feels like I'm flying it's really amazing and I, I remember when I got it it got delivered to my old design studio where I was working um, and it was it fully like together in the box and I rode it home over London Bridge and it was just the most amazing feeling I actually felt like I was flying because everything was just calibrated the most and that's because it's made perfectly. bespoke for you the measurements are all yeah there. I guess you know also for they don't really make bikes for women <laughs> you know like um proportionally um you know or, or have like uh narrower shoulders and shorter arms or whatever and it's the first bike i've ever ridden that i don't really feel like i'm overstretching or um things are slightly uncomfortable because it's actually made to my dimensions there'll be somebody listening to this now who's thinking what sort of steel tubing you have on there so do you know what that is it a renault it's did, a renault's 531 or it's something. a 531 it's a renault's 531 see you're straight in there with that you can have a look now aren't you it's actually 631 a renault's 631 <laughs> after 18 years you didn't realize it was 631 and i suppose we've got to have what's the group set that you have on it as well oh it's like a campag you've got a campag i like it well campag so you've got you, you have your shimano breed and your campag breed so you've you've won over the campag there as well yeah <laughs> well looking at it though it looks like it's it's used a lot in a great way so it's uh it's yeah. used all the time it's amazing